Hi and welcome to uh, From Many People's Strength, the podcast that covers Saskatchewan politics and current events. My name is Corey and my pronouns are he and him. And my name is David, my pronouns are they and them, and I'm okay with he and him as well. And, and we're joined by Steve. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve, uh, Steve Boots, and my pronouns are he, him. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Steve. Um, I guess a little bit about yourself, uh, if in case people don't know you. Um, yeah. Sure, yeah. Who, who are you, Steve? <laughs> uh, well, for most folks, they'll probably recognize me from uh, either TikTok or Twitter. Uh, I've kind of gained a little bit of notoriety in the last year or so uh, for, you know, my political hot takery on Twitter and uh, doing some breakdowns of current events. And then I uh, also post quite a bit on TikTok and same thing, sort of breakdowns of current events, talking about politics and sort of just being Canadian TikTok social studies teacher, I guess. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. So what, what got you started doing uh, like the TikTok? Okay, so uh, my day job is as a teacher, and uh, it literally happened because I was uh, avoiding working on report cards. I, <laughs> I had a big stack of marking, and I was, like, looking for excuses not to do it. And I sort of consciously made the decision to record on what I thought was an uninteresting topic, just to sort of, like, take a kick at the can. And so I recorded on... Uh, uh, the departure of the the head of the SHA, Scott Livingston. And it did like 70,000 views in like the first <laughs> day or two. And it was sort of this like, I guess this is a thing I do now. And just sort of got into it from there and built a bunch of momentum and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So right on. Yeah. And you've kind of, uh, you started a podcast as well. I did. I did. Um, I recorded about six episodes of it uh, over my, my February break. <coughs> and uh, it's, it's up on uh, all the standard podcast things. Uh, I'll probably revisit it at some point, but it's given me a tremendous amount of respect for folks who do podcasts regularly because it is <laughs> so much work. So good on you guys for for pursuing it. It is a little bit of work, yeah. It's a lot nicer to sit in this chair and just show up and talk. Yeah, agree. Sure. Agree. That's my job every every time we do this. So I I wholeheartedly support that sentiment. But it was but, definitely uh, I was gonna say it was definitely the TikTok fame. I think that that uh, is why we 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 invited you. So it was uh, a month or two ago, Corey. Had, talked about possibly bringing in people and like okay so there's this guy on tiktok that i've been following like for a while now it, we need to so, get him on he he does what we do, do but better so <laughs> I, I don't know about that but uh you know it's it's so funny like i have this my fiance and i joke sometimes that like my background is like this perfect arc towards what i'm doing now like in university, I studied film. I studied English lit. I worked as a stand-up comedian when I was in university and then like did social studies education and all that stuff and just have been a policy and politics nerd for my whole life. And it's just sort of like a thing that I stumbled into that it turned out I'd been sort of prep, prepping, excuse me, prepping for my whole life. So well, the format kind of happened. The format of the the bite sized portions, I think, is it, 
is probably well suited to teachers more than most people think is you're probably dealing with students whose attention span isn't always much more than one to three minutes. So you have to compartmentalize things into, I need to get that fundamental point across within 60 seconds or I'll lose people. It's Um, that it's pacing, it's timing. It's, it's sort of like knowing, like I teach middle years, which is like somewhere between grade six and nine ish. And the most important skill, there's a, ah, there's a bunch, but one of the most important skills is the ability to explain a complicated thing simply, right? And I think that's sort of where I try to come from is to explain complicated things simply and to give them in sort of, like you said, manageable bite-sized pieces. Feels like the opposite of my skill set. I think I'm probably relatively similar to, I, I pontificate a little too long at times and don't keep it as bite-sized, but yeah. Well, speaking I, of, I tend to. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I tend to explain simple things very long and complex <laughs> ways, and and to, until they almost make no sense. So, well, see, for me, it's funny. Like it, like I tend to be a fairly concise person just in life, but I record most of my TikToks a sentence or two at a time, which makes it really easy to be concise. Because if mm. I get rambling, I'll just go. Ah, I'll take another pass at that one. And so it makes it really easy to be really tight and concise that way. Like editing sentence by sentence isn't a thing that's really feasible anywhere other than that. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of (laughs) trying to break things into bite-sized portions, we want to start tackling a couple of the stories. Sure. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe doubles down after carbon comments criticized. Uh, So he said some pretty dumb shit. Uh, (laughs) Uh, about carbon and not giving, uh, not caring. Um, and now he, he is saying, oh, well, I guess this came out on April 11th. So that's a few days ago, like almost two weeks. And he said he is standing with the, I don't care right now when it comes to the metric of per capita emissions. This is, I think, I think I've encountered this quite a bit, actually. Uh, I've heard John Gormley say that the per capita measurement he doesn't like that. Uh, <clears throat> I've heard lots of right wingers talk about this as a per capita is not an important measure to them. <laughs> so I have super mixed feelings about it because, like in Saskatchewan, per capita isn't great context for carbon. It just it's there's way better ways to contextualize it. But per capita is also per company like, perhaps. <laughs> but it's but per capita is an easy thing to wrap your head around. So yeah. it's a stat that we jump to quite quickly. And so, like, I get why, like, I think contesting using per capita, it it makes some sense. Like, there's there's maybe better ways to have that conversation. But this I don't care stuff, he knows exactly what he's doing, right? He's just signaling the base as loud as possible, maybe swinging some flares above his head. (laughs) Yeah. Because the point about per capita, and I, like... The underlying argument that if you're an exporting economy per capita can be problematic because you're not the ones consuming that production of carbon. Like that carbon production is being generated by consumption that's occurring elsewhere where there is more capita. Um, so like, but you don't like the I don't care line is, is so. Again, as you said, it's signaling the base because you could make that same argument and come back, you know, a week later and say, you know what, that was a poor choice of words. 
that would require a conservative to admit they ever did something wrong, but <laughs> it was a poor choice yeah. of words. Um, I do care. I care about the bad reputation Saskatchewan is getting from this. I care that we are being falsely maligned. I care that the, the planet is, you know, being taken care of in the best way possible. I care that there are polluters elsewhere who are consuming what we export and they're not getting the blame, but we are. Like, you could still, even sticking to the conservative worldview of, uh, of what they're trying to say, you could still say it in a way that's not, I don't care. You could talk about what you do care about. Um, but it, I'm always skeptical anytime anyone's makes a point of saying what they don't care about because people who actually don't care about things don't talk about them. Yeah. Like if, if you're talking about something, if you're investing energy and, and this is across the spectrum, that, that person who quote unquote doesn't care about uh, representation in a movie. No, they do care. They care that it's not white dudes anymore or what have you. They care enough to be passionate about it, yeah. but they're hiding behind this. I don't care. Um, and I think Scott Moe is just taking that, you know, 14 year old nerd on Reddit mentality and expanding it to a far more serious issue. I think that's a big part of it, but I think there's also an important thing that we need to keep our eye on, which is the, the tactic that he's using here, which is he's shifted the conversation to being about his comments rather than the issue of carbon itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. By playing this game that he plays where he yells, I don't care. And then everybody goes, he doesn't care. And he's like, no, I don't. Ha ha. All of a sudden, the conversation is about that. And nobody's talking about the massive carbon emissions that Saskatchewan puts out. Right. Like it's yeah. he he he's really mastered the art of this deflection. Yeah. Right. And then he gets a whole new cycle about that instead of about the carbon emissions that are the real issue here. It's um, I was, it's been say, said on the show a couple times in the past about how um, there's this concept of Hanlon's razor. Um, don't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to incompetence. But I think conservatives have weaponized that. Like I think of that when I think yeah. of Trudeau a lot. Like anytime we think about Trudeau being this evil Machiavellian mastermind, I often think, well, I think sometimes he just makes mistakes. This isn't a big Machiavellian plot. Um, yeah. But I think conservatives almost weaponize it to defend themselves. It's like, oh, ho, ho, this guy's not actually intentionally doing all of these horrible, evil things. He's just a, a doddering old fool. Um, and I think it it helps disguise some pretty shitty behavior that's intentional and thought out. And that's it, right? Like, he knows he knows what he's doing. It's all super strategic. And, like... We all know he's getting his marching orders from resource companies, right? Like he's figured out how to play the game just to keep the money flowing, to keep the machine running. Uh, catch and release. This is a story about uh, some arson that happened in, I believe it was Elida. Uh, Angela and Clayton Erickson said, uh, like their son burned down their house and I can't, I think other buildings as well. <coughs> yeah, two other yeah, vacant two other homes. Vacant, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the administrative office in Elida. And this this story, it's it's, it's a very, uh, I thought it was really a sad story. Like, uh, obviously, this is a person with uh, needs, needed support and mental health supports way earlier than now and, and didn't get them because 
it seems like it seems like a very systemic like failure to me. Um, not not because people didn't try, but because there's just sometimes there's limitations on the system, and I don't know. I know somebody in uh, in the Saskatchewan subreddit, which is my favorite place to go to get uh, abused by conservatives. <laughs> they uh, they said that this is a story about why we need more police in rural areas. Uh, but I feel like that's the wrong way to go on this. I mean, it comes down to, in my mind, uh, it, it more illustrates the need for mental health supports rather than the need for police, right? Like yeah. this, the like I know the last time I heard, which was about a month ago, the waiting list for psychiatric care in Saskatoon was 800 people long. Like if you need mental health care right now, the waiting list is somewhere around 18 months. Like people just aren't getting help. And by the time they are getting help, you know, this, the situations they're in are so far advanced that the help is not too late. I don't want to say that, but it's not timely by any stretch. Yeah, I suppose it depends on because uh, in some cases it is too late. We have like what would consider quite a, a number of suicides that happen in rural mm-hmm. Saskatchewan, and maybe if we had some mental health supports, that wouldn't be as uh, yeah. d- as prevalent of an issue. Well, and the idea about more policing is problematic. You know, again, I don't think anyone is shocked by our views on that, but. Um, <laughs> We don't have like we don't have a minority report situation. Like the crimes that were the warning signs were not crimes that are that that put someone away for life, right? Like yeah. they they are, and and we don't put people in jail or even 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 the hard on crime folks typically don't think we should be putting people in jail for thought crimes or like what we think they yeah. may do in the future. Um, and quite frankly. Um, if we're using this case, he's going to be the absolute last person that ends up facing severe consequences for those early crimes. Um, because let's be honest, if yeah. we start ramping up punishments for those early warning sign crimes, it's not going to be the white, rural, middle class guy who probably knows the local cop, who probably drinks with, yeah. you know, people in town. Like it, Again, my uh, go-to story, we, we see the difference between what happens when people like Scott Moe break the law as a 20-something-year-old versus what happens to people of color, people from marginalized communities. Like, if we're talking about this as the, okay, we should be punishing people like this more harshly, we really shouldn't have Scott Moe as our premier. Like, that that's the type of person you're talking about. Whereas if we start talking about mental health supports, then we can start saying, hey, this person hasn't committed a crime yet, or the crime that they've committed are such that, you know, are fines or, or what have you. They're, they're, they're small crimes, even if they do warrant um, incarceration time, you know, realistically should be smaller. Um, but we can recommend mental health supports. We can get them the treatment that they need. Um, we can get them... Because, most people I know, virtually everyone I know that struggles with mental health wants support, um, wants to be talking to someone who can make the pain go away or at least make the pain more manageable. Um, so like that's the way of getting help for people who 
are in the early stages before they are burning down homes and really seriously harming people. For me, it's like, I think this illustrates how, like you said that people, you know, people can get help or people want help. But like in this case, like this kid, he's waiting in a jail cell right now because there's no room at the psychiatric hospital. But, but there's plenty of beds, right? There's, but only half in the secure wing are active right now because there's just nobody to work. Right. It's just, it's so just shines such a bright light on the way that our system is, is critically underfunded and the government just keeps like building buildings and not funding them. Right. Like there's the we're only running half the beds. Like this, the kid in this story, like he's, he clearly needs a lot of support and help and he's just, yeah. it's just not there. It kills me. And like one thing's like when I am trying to do sort of bridge that divide between those who are more supportive of of policing in general, mm-hmm. um, I go back to using the the phrase like let's let if we think there should be police, let's let police be police, right? Like they were hired to do a certain job. I don't know very many. I don't know very many cops, but the cops I do know and the cops I do talk to don't want to be psychiatrists. They don't want to be mental health professionals. They don't want to be social workers. They were, they were hired. They, they went into that field to, you know, quote unquote, stop bad guys. Um, and they don't want to be spending their time having to be an emotional support to be psychiatric support. So let's get the funding into places where we can actually hire the people who want to do the job that needs to get done. And if we're going to keep cops, and I think, I'm in the minority that thinks we shouldn't. So if we are keeping cops, let's let them do cop shit as opposed yeah. to doing the job of people who are better trained and, and trained in that area to do the work that needs to be done. SHA was warned of a lengthened COVID wave after Scott Moe said he'd scrap the restrictions. And this was uh, on April 13th. This came out and... Yeah, records reveal a provincial res- provincial officials mauled asking police, fire, and city staff to help fill roles in the province's COVID nineteen response. The uh, there's <laughs> obviously some issues uh, where <laughs> where when you don't have any restrictions, things keep happening. <laughs> it doesn't go away just because you want it to. There was a um, a really great. Um this hour is 22 minutes skit I saw on, uh, on YouTube the other day where um, it was, Hey, it's our end of COVID party. And it's these two people talking about, you know, isn't it great that COVID's over? What a great well end of COVID party. And then they go, Oh, by the way, you know, is it just the two of us? Yeah. You know, where's, where's Sue? Oh, she's got COVID. Uh, and then she just consistently are asked where so-and-so, Oh, they're, uh, they're in Bahamas. Oh, okay. Is the tr- Oh, they got stuck there because of COVID. Uh, and like they just, they go through this entire list of every one of their friends and every single person couldn't attend because of, because they got COVID, um, literally to the joke being like in the middle of the party, they pull out the rapid test and, and have COVID. Um, but I think it's, <laughs> and it's satire, right? So it takes, it takes the reality and expands it. But holy fuck, is it true? Like you try and do anything these days and you're hearing about all of these people who can't do whatever it is because of COVID. And yeah. amongst the vaccinated part of the population, it tends to be more of a case of, yeah, I'm feeling sick. I'm staying home. I had to take a week off work or I had to like, it's, it's, 
it's an inconvenience uh, amongst people who are a privileged enough to have work that allows you to have paid time off um, and who are healthy enough to be such that vaccination will protect them to the degree to which it's an inconvenience rather than life threatening. But it seems like a hell of a lot more people have COVID now than a year and a half ago when there were restrictions. And we're just like covering our eyes and pretending it's not happening. And it's. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember at the start of the pandemic, like it would, somebody would get COVID and it would sort of like make its way around the sort of like grapevine. Everybody'd be like, oh, did you hear so and so got COVID? And it was like big news. And now by this point, just everybody's, it seems like everybody's got it at any given moment. Like, yeah. It's yeah. it's like nothing I've ever seen, but and and yet everybody seems to be just carrying on as if everything is just a okay. Don't even worry about it. The oh, the, right. the cognitive dissonance is like just unbelievable. And so my fiance is immunocompromised, and so we wear our N95s everywhere we go, and like the looks we get are oh yeah yeah man. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. (laughs) Like there's just this weird hostility. It's like, you're a reminder of something that they don't want to think about, you know? That's, I I think that's literally what it is, right? (laughs) We can't pretend it's gone if we still see people wearing masks. Exactly. Exactly. But they, they, they don't make the, like the, you walk into a store and they are woefully understaffed or you go into a store. Like you go into the mall and there are stores shut down because they don't have mm. enough staff, period. Um, like people don't connect that. that. That's all being caused by COVID too. This idea that we're reopening for the economy when reopening is hurting the economy just as much, if not more, is, is this weird disconnect. Like those those things aren't reminders. Oh, yeah. and like a lot of folks I know right now or actually like either very recently moved back to the office or in the process of moving back to the office as everybody is sick. So it's much harder to move everybody back to the office. And it's just like, it's, it feels like the weirdest, least interesting twilight zone episode, (laughs) like, like a season seven sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the uh, the memes going around about I need to apologize to the writers of Jurassic Park um, that uh, a, a corporation's reopening in spite of things being incredibly unsafe and dangerous is a lot more realistic than I thought it was when that movie came out. Um, yeah. People can just continuing to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results each time. And it, yeah, the one it, that I love is the people just basically say baselessly saying like. Yeah, I'm just kind of over it. Like, that's not quite how this works. Like, you can't just ask to speak to COVID's manager. Yeah. And, like, I'm over it, too. I get it. But it doesn't mean I stop wearing the mask. And it doesn't mean I... That's it. Yeah, it's... Like, like, I'm a teacher. I've I've been at work every day for the last two years and a bit, just reacting constantly and in a mask all day, like... I promise you, I am exactly as as sick of it as you are. I just don't have the luxury of saying, "eh, guess not." Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things that I I'm trying to figure out exactly what people are complaining about when they're talking about like all our freedoms being restricted. Because I was still like, we had to be in the car 
but we still went out and we got picked up food and we were out outside of the house. Like nobody, there wasn't like the police barricading us in our doors. And like, but even now when people are like, I just want everything to go back to normal. Like you are not being denied any sort of normal. Like there's no yeah. rules. <laughs> yeah. Like what, like, what are you, there is a denial of normal. It's, so it's a funny. natural phenomenon doing it though. Like, COVID is what's denying us normal, but we just keep well, not dealing with that. And, and I think, <laughs> yeah. but there's this, like, there's this incredibly unrealistic streak in a lot of people where they think that things are just going to go back to the way they were in like 2005 and we're just going to carry on. It's like, there's going to be hand sanitizer stations everywhere you go from here to eternity now. Like, that's yeah. never going away. Yeah. Like... It, it, people, I think, just people are still grieving or going dealing with all of the sort of collective trauma that they went through, and just aren't ready to accept that things are going to be different. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I don't think people realize like how much a society will change when this this type of structural phenomenon happens. Um, like when the H1N1 pandemic happened uh, several years back, it didn't hit North America nearly as hard as it hit Asia. And like mask wearing became the normal. Like when COVID hit, the idea of wearing masks wasn't as unusual because that was just what you do. If you're feeling sick, you wear a mask. Like that was, that's just been drained into the culture and it had been for over a decade now. So I, I suspect, you know, there are going to be people in North America who 10 years from now, when, you know, COVID is, is a unpleasant memory, or at least hopefully is an unpleasant memory. Uh, you know, it's the thing we get vaccinated for yearly or, or whatever that happens. Um, who will treat wearing a mask in 2030 the same way people who were hit hard by the 2009 H1N1 treat wearing a mask today so well it's funny because like i think a part of that change is gonna happen just because like in like i with the age group that i work with they don't care like they'll wear a mask it doesn't bother them none for the most part like because they're just used to it like they to them it's just a nothing thing for the most part it's a minor annoyance but it's a nothing thing yeah and so I think you'll have a generation of people who, like, when it is time, like, when there's a COVID-24 or whatever, or whatever new thing, because there will be. I yeah, think yeah. It, it will be easier next time around in that sense, just because there's going to be a whole generation of people who have wrapped their head around it. But yeah, makes who, sense. Who easier and harder. I think you'll have more resistance the people who are going to resist it are going to resist it even harder at the start, I think. it. I never fully wrapped my head around why the conservative movement grabbed on so tightly to resisting masks. Like how that became a specifically conservative thing. Because like in, in most Asian countries, like there are conservative politicians and conservative parties that never grabbed onto the politicization of masking. So I don't know why it was. Just did they see a wedge and grab onto it as tightly as they could? I think. It, I think. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think it that like there was the conspiracy. There was conspiracies around just COVID wasn't real at all. So any measure you take, so whatever measure got taken, was the this is a liberal conspiracy. So yeah. like it could have been hand sanitizer. It could have been like. But I think 
masking grew to be one of those, hey, we've discovered this is really effective. And for people to go, okay, well, obviously then, since my worldview requires this pandemic to be a conspiracy, anything that someone who says it's real is saying to do must be dangerous. It'd be like like if, if Scott Moe all of a sudden came out one day and said, you know, use DoorDash instead of skip the dishes, I'd be naturally skeptical about using DoorDash. Like it's, it's because of <laughs> he's someone I'm naturally skeptical of. My natural inclination would be, oh, why is like DoorDash now installed rolling coal in all their delivery vehicles? I don't like it's, <laughs> well, it's yeah, that's right. and, and I would hope that I am self-aware enough that after like I sat down on, okay, no, it just turned out his cousin is a, uh, you know, owns part of the company. So it's, yeah, it's, it's biased, but you know, whatever, it's still just no different from the millionaire owning this company or the millionaire owning that company. Like I, I would hope I could then sit down and put that bias to the side for a bit. But I think if you've decided in your heart of hearts that Dr. Fauci is working for a secret pedophile ring in a pizza parlor or what have you, anything he tells you to do is evil. So that's my long yeah, rambling answer to a fairly simple question. <laughs> yeah. It conveniently hit upon like a, a really interesting time politically when like conspiracy theories were becoming the mainstream view of the conservative movement. And like uh, Donald Trump was like the figurehead pushing a lot of this stuff. And also like, the more you want to hate the people that you disagree with, like it's if you have some easy identifier like a mask, then okay, mask wearers are the enemy now. Well, you can't tell if somebody's using hand sanitizer, right? You can't tell if they're following measures in some other way. But a mask, now I can say you're the guy, you're the person that I disagree with. So it's really lots of factors played into it, I think. <laughs> you're probably right. It's it's almost like um, I've had a couple people say, like, three years ago, if they saw someone with a Canadian flag on the roof of their truck, they would go, okay, you know, that's a that's yeah, great, good for you, man. Like, probably <laughs> put it up on Canada Day and forgot to take it down. Or, you know, maybe there's a really important hockey game coming up. Um, but we see it now, and, like, that's is it's, it's a scary thing now, right? Like, yeah. that's a thing where... I'm like, okay, is this, am I safe to be in this environment? Like, I literally have those natural inclinations now. And Canadian flags, there's a history of colonialism and there's some ass issues there. But like, three years ago, I would have said they were a relatively innocuous, harmless thing. Well, and now they've grown to not be because of who they're associated with. I vividly remember, I used to live in the UK and you were very often told to stitch like a Canadian flag on your bags because they'd be less likely to be stolen just because it was sort of like this yeah. widely regarded as sort of positive thing. And it feels like, yeah, you're right. That's been oh, yeah. tainted for sure. I think outside of Canada, I hope it's maybe not still quite that degree, but maybe not. I, don't know. I, I feel like nearly every country is dealing with its own populist movements right yeah. now. So I don't, I don't know if Canada would be singled out by any stretch. Yeah. In the same way, like if I saw someone with a UK flag here, I probably wouldn't think anything of it. Whereas I'm, 
I know for a while now they've run into some of those issues where groups like Britain First are very are, are, are sort of emulating the American flavor of nationalism. So, Dustin Duncan, the Minister of Education, says COVID measures in high schools is not going to happen. Uh, I think the headline basically explains the the story. <laughs> like he just he said this is not a thing he's interested in pushing forward. Uh, I don't know exactly why. I guess I do know why, because it's partisan politics. It's it's their team. But So I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, okay. And I think it's a symptom of a larger issue. Um, and he's been playing this game basically since the pandemic started. And it, it basically in about, I want to say 2013, but I may have my years wrong because I'm terrible at years. Um the government actually looked at dissolving individual school boards and just amalgamating all of the school divisions like they did with the health region. And they got a lot of blowback for that, but they have been eroding boards power for years and years and years. So like when in, they took away the, uh, the ability to control the mill rate. So they like centralized education funding and a bunch of stuff. And they they've been stripping power and stripping power from the boards. And this is a hundred percent what happened uh, or what they're doing. They, they, when they were trying to dodge the mask thing. So there was a period of time where there was no mask mandates and there was like really widespread calls for mask mandates in school divisions. And, and the government punted the decision down to the divisions and said, well, divisions can decide. And I think all of the divisions, maybe one or two holdouts, but I'm pretty sure all of the divisions decided to implement mask mandates. Basically, from the looks of it, it looks like the government handed this teeny tiny sliver of authority back to the divisions and are like snatching it back as tightly as all get out. And it's just it's it's a centralization of power thing. It's it's they they are so thoroughly convinced that they know best. But I will tell you, like, it it varies a lot from school to school, but masking remains pretty prevalent in schools, like, especially among the older age groups, like, kids know what's going on. They're usually right. pretty plugged into the world, and they're smart, right? Like, they see their friends going off sick, and they, they think, eh, it's maybe time to put this thing back on. My kids never stopped. Like... Obviously, they have me as their dad and know my opinion on things. We're we're a pretty open household about talking about things, and they know they're allowed to disagree with me on 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 most stuff. And if they had taken their masks off at school, you know, we would have talked about it. But ultimately, I can't force them to wear it while they're at school. I'm not going to punish them for not doing it if the school says they're not allowed. They're allowed to not. Um, right. But like. Mm-hmm. They definitely are. Like they're they're pretty passionate. Um, you know, my older son had a social studies project. He's in he's in grade eight, and he had a social studies project um, a few months ago. And like he just wrote an entire comic book all about. Like he's even more political than I am at times. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the stupidity of people not wearing masks and. Uh, <laughs> So like they they're they're and it sounds like most of their again most of their classmates are all all wearing them so it's a good thing but so it's this is entirely just anecdotal but I I talk to a fair number of teachers it sounds like to a pretty strong degree it just depends on whether or not the teachers in an individual classroom or an individual school are wearing masks like in a class where the teacher didn't continue wearing their masks the students typically took them off 
younger kids generally aren't masking a ton, I don't think, just because that's it's tough. It's really tough. Like with a kindergartner, how do you do that all day? I have no idea. I yeah. <laughs> I can't pretend to understand. That feels like nailing jello to a wall, but yeah, with the old with the older ones, like I think it's it depended on the school and like I think certain divisions, as soon as the mask mandates were dropped, it was like just gone. You'll never see another mask again. But it, I think in the cities, especially, masking stayed pretty strong. The problem is like this whole personal responsibility nonsense means that we wind up in this place where like I have no idea if it's a good idea to still be wearing a mask, if I should still be wearing a mask. Like to know what the quote unquote right decision is, I have no earthly idea. I'm taking, I'm leaving my mask on because I tend to err on the side of caution, but I have no idea if that's what I should be doing. Like, and it's really hard to get a straight answer because we don't know how many cases there are. We don't know how many, you know, whatever there are. So, like, I'm, tell me I'm not the only one who's just sort of yeah. winging it. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. If, I, if I see an empty store, I will often run in without a mask. If I see a packed store, I'm putting the mask on. <laughs> and that's it. Like, and, like, the the one that makes me laugh, my fiancé and I, like, you know you're just sort of, like, stuck in the force of habit. Because we walk from the car, we get out of the car, we put on a mask, walk into the restaurant, sit at the table, and then just take off the mask and start eating and drinking and whatever, right? Yeah. And we don't, we haven't quite wrapped our head around the fact that like that 30 seconds of mask was probably completely pointless. We just sort of still do it because (laughs) you get, you just don't know what to do. And so you just sort of do it all the time, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sask right. Health Official says the hospitals are bursting at the seams and it's time to mask up. <laughs> so this came out uh, 10 days ago on April 14th. Um, and a senior health official is urging voluntary mask use and other precautions as hospitals in Saskatoon and Regina fill up. Yeah. I mean, we just, like you say, we just finished talking about this. Almost identical subject. <laughs> I think one In thing- regards to schools, so. One thing worth noting here is like uh, this, the data in this article is like a tad behind, but we are at the highest hospitalizations. I believe Mm. we have been all pandemic. We're at 417, I want to say. Yeah, I guess. Although I must say, I I just opened up uh, out of curiosity, the hospitalization numbers in Saskatoon. Um, So their capacity numbers are published live online. Uh, I will uh, throw the link in the group chat here. Um, But this is the first time in probably two months that I've looked that they haven't been at capacity or above. So that's actually fairly encouraging for once. This is the first time I've looked and haven't gone, oh, God. Um, (laughs) That's something. Yeah. That's progress. Honestly, that's the first time I've looked at those and been encouraged in quite a while. So it's possible we've sort of crested. Who knows? The problem is the data we get's a week old. So yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're never really up to date. And uh, even when they're reporting numbers to us, those numbers aren't complete. 
the way they should have been. Yeah. And even since the start of the pandemic, Saskatchewan's numbers haven't been complete the way other provinces have, have been. So, Well, it's always just trying to muddy the waters, right? Like yeah. the less – the harder it is to figure out what's going on, the less likely people are to care. So yeah. out of curiosity, do you guys think that – do you guys think long term that the public inquiry ever actually happens? No. <laughs> That was a confident no. <laughs> well, I'm, we've talked, yeah, I, 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 let me backtrack on that. Not while the conserv, not while the Sask Party's in power. Right. It will not happen. The Sask Party, like the Sask Party, will not do an inquiry on themselves ever, no matter what. I accountability is not that is, thing. That, is, that is not in the playbook. <laughs> like. I, I am sincerely curious to see if they get enough signatures to force that vote, the plebiscite. Yeah. I think that's the only chance that it happens, and I think it's a Hail Mary. But, yeah. man, wouldn't it be something if it happened? Yeah, plebiscite's not binding. They still just wouldn't do it. <laughs> you're no, right. Because the, the backlash, right. is, the backlash right. is worse for doing it than not doing it. I think the backlash from rejecting a public plebiscite would be... That's that's pretty next level. You have far more faith in the conservative base than me. <laughs> like, cause, cause it's it's not that. It's I have more faith in their desire to cover their own tails, right? If fifty if if a winning percentage of the electorate votes for a public inquiry, they've got to listen. Like at a yeah, certain that's, that's the key. I don't actually think they'll get the votes for it because they've already convinced their base that they don't need an inquiry. And if we even can get the, where there's a plebiscite even happens. Right. So I, I have a suspicion that their base is a little bit. um, I think I have a suspicion that their base has been whittled down a bit. I, I think there are a lot of people who are curious for an option outside of the Sask party. And I I wish we saw a little bit more ambition from the NDP because I really think if if you showed people something interesting right now they'd listen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I, and I, I think there's a ch- yep. I, I, yep. I think there is a chance of an inquiry. I think there's a chance that the Sask Party loses the next election. I do not think it is a good chance, but I think there is a chance that the Sask Party loses the next election. And at that point. There is a then maybe. chance, but at that point, I think you have the oh well. Let's let's you do the same thing that progressive governments do every time they take o- take over from a corrupt conservative government, which is be too scared of looking partisan. Which it's this weird circle, right? It's you you have open naked corruption within your your grant divine governments within your. Uh, Sask party governments, like open naked corruption that happens. You get a progressive government that comes in and, oh, well, we don't want to use inquiries for political payback and that will look bad. And it all sort of just goes away. And then the flip side happens is when the conservative governments get in, there's inquiries over stuff from 10 years previous that was innocuous at best. Um, but well, that's it, right? There's only at this point a lot of conservative parties, like worldwide, and like this is certainly most prevalent in the Republicans, but it's happening everywhere. Is is just this sort of like this total abandonment of norms? Yeah, just like 
so this thing happens. Every teacher goes through this exact same experience where you do a simulation activity where you're like, we're going to do parliament in our class. Everybody <laughs> tries to do it. And what you realize very quickly is like, if you lay out the rules, there's always a couple who figure out like, we can play pretty fast and loose with these rules <laughs> and make some stuff happen. And like, and here's the thing though. They're not like trying to like pass policy. They're just going to try to make it ridiculous. They're just going to try to send it off the rails. And what they figure out quite quickly is it's not that hard in the parliamentary rules to just send stuff completely off the rails. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. They're just weaponizing the rules, abandoning norms. And it's all just because they view it as like a sport to be won. Yes. Yep. You know, yep. and our and team in, versus your team. And inquiry is an own goal. Yeah, the reason and I don't think it. there will never be an inquiry is an inquiry is an own goal. So why would you shoot at your own net? But like, that's the problem is when you think about it as an as a sport. Yeah, you, you're going to think about it as an own goal. In reality, like if their actual goal was good governance, of course <laughs> they do an inquiry. You'd be oh, ridiculous sure. not to. 100%. Yeah, yeah. But that hasn't like, been the goal. Bad an eye. That hasn't been the goal of a conservative government. Since 1979, <laughs> like I, I, I try and name a 79s uh, <laughs> being generous. I will. I would. I will argue that I think Joe Clark wanted to have a good government. I think Joe Clark federally in 79 had <laughs> for the three minutes that he was prime minister. Um, yeah, but like I, whether it's 79 or earlier. But I, I don't know if you can identify I, I'll, a conservative, I'll provincial, Joe or federal. Clark, I'll grant you that Joe Clark was a con principal conservative. The like I disagreed is, with his policies, but I think he actually wanted but, those policies rather than just wanted that, to win. I'll, I'll grant you that. This is it. Is It's hard for me to think of him objectively just because yep. I differ from him so fundamentally. But, like, I don't know. He, yeah, at least it felt like... Like in my mind, good a, a good political system. There's lots of different options, but in in the way things are in Canada, if it was actually progressives laying out, you know, ambitious ideas, and conservatives trimming the fat, as is meant to be, sort of the ebb and flow of this, mm -hmm. that would probably be workable. But it doesn't amount to that anymore. No. It's just one one side saying we get our way or we're taking our ball and going home. Yeah. And to be fair, I try and like I, I'm I don't know if I'm the most progressive or the least progressive on this podcast. I, 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 I find myself <laughs> on weird parts of the spectrum at times. To be fair, the left fall prey to it as well. And some of the most beloved figures on the left fall into that same trap because like. Jack Layton was the Stephen Harper of the left. Like Jack Layton did that from the left. He was always far more interested in winning than actually implementing policy. It was, it was, he was the king of viewing it as a team sport rather than about governance, which is what needed to happen. He was so beloved because he did view it as a team sport and that's why he got better at winning. Um, and time, I don't yeah. know what the solution is because it's, you you need someone like that in order to get your team, your quote-unquote team, to win. The problem is that, and this is, this is a problem that exists on both sides, but it, this is actually, I would say, almost 
much more pronounced on the left, is you need somebody who is principled, especially on the left. Like you need a person of principle, of values, of ideals, of vision, all of that. But they also need to be a skillful and an effective political operator. And it's very hard to be a person with that degree of principle and be a skillful political operator. Like look at look at the very wide-eyed Jagmeet Singh who rolled into politics with that that we accept you thing. And he he brought that very positive brand of politics. And look at what he's the changes he's gone through in order to be an effective political operator. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I don't know how you do both. I don't yeah. know if there's a great answer to that. I don't know if we've seen it. Like, but, yeah, Tommy it's, it's tough because, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about it, right? I, like, I think you can't do it in one person because when we talk about Tommy Douglas, especially when we start looking federal, Tommy Douglas isn't Tommy Douglas without Lester Pearson. By the same token, Lester Pearson isn't Lester Pearson without Tommy Douglas, right? Like, their legacies are so fundamentally intertwined. Um, and but you the have- other the other issue that we've got to grapple with, in particular on the left, is that the left is trying to move away from great man politics. Mm-hmm. Right? And so yeah. how do you simultaneously find the leader that you need while moving away from, you know, great leader politics? I don't know, man. And, and how do you bring together, like everybody left of the liberals is a tremendously wide net. And yeah, Leighton kind of brought them together, but Singh is not. And I don't know who could. Different type of depressing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> The government, the the conservatives think that there is a uh, a truck tax coming uh, from the federal government. They're very concerned about it. Uh, the one guy, if there's a truck tax, he's going to have to drive uh, his motorbike too much. <laughs> I'm just not sure what the hell this story is. <laughs> like, am I supposed to feel bad for these guys? Because I don't. <laughs> like, so that's the... Th- the people buying like a $60,000 plus truck, like a $60,000 truck is on the lower end. Yeah, Complaining yeah. about this very minor tax is hilarious to really begin <laughs> with. But like, so the the way that this came out was literally just like so coordinated and so obviously just a grift. Like yeah. all the conservative pre- or premiers – Pierre Poiliev all at once just attack this tax that doesn't even exist. It is just beyond hilarious to me, especially because it's just a proposed expansion of a tax that Poiliev was part of the group that wrote. (laughs) And I know as someone who tends to be relatively critical of the right, um, I try and be very careful about criticizing the spitballing the right does, right? Like, if I go combing through the proposals that happen in committees at the conservative or the UCP or the Sask party conventions, boy, howdy could I come up with a lot of ammunition, right? Like, you can, there is some crazy, crazy shit that gets proposed 
that never becomes part of a platform, let alone becomes part of policy that actually gets implemented. Because we all know there's yeah. a bunch of stuff that does go into platforms that still are never actually going to get implemented. But like yeah. things that are, aren't actually going to enter into the platform, <laughs> there's not a lot of point in me going in and trying to go, a gotcha, you said here in this committee at this convention that, you know, X, Y, Z. Like, that's stupid because it's there's enough real things to attack. It's, it's like, praised by faint damnation. It's like if the best you can come up with is a proposal that some guy at some committee brought forward, <laughs> that's not a real thing to criticize. Um, and there should be, an, like, there's enough real stuff to criticize in conservative platforms. And oh, yeah. if you are a conservative, there should be enough things in the liberal platform for you to critique. Like, go after things you don't agree with, but find ones that are real. But further to that, like, is is a personal use truck tax that bad an idea? Like, I live in a, you know, a neighborhood with, like, you know, a fairly mixed neighborhood. And there's lots of houses that have two trucks. Like, right. how on earth do you need two trucks? Like, two full-size half tons. Like, with the big super crew and all that stuff where, like, they cost more than my house. Yeah. And it just, it, the obsession with trucks and this notion that you need a colossal truck to drive on a Saskatchewan highway. Otherwise, you're going to just plummet to your death. I cannot process because like you drive, you, I've driven a few of these trucks before and it's like driving a Sherman tank and mm-hmm. I have no idea why these people feel it's that necessary for their just day to day driving a Sobeys. It's, it, uh, <laughs> it's a carryover, right? Uh, <laughs> a lot of guys that live in the cities now, like they actually, maybe they started working on rigs or they're related to the oil field in some way. And when you go to the rig, you're going on a lot of back roads. So you have to have a good truck, but <laughs> you also are burning a massive amount of fuel, right? Like the thing is, if you're living in the city, you're, you're burning way more fuel than you would be going to the rig going to your off-road job a hundred kilometers away. Well, and that's, that's exactly why I said personally use trucks, right? Like if you're using it for a job site or something, that makes sense. And a lot of those guys who are taking them out to work on the rigs, you know, make some allowance for that or something for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I have yeah. no, I, I don't pretend to have a perfect answer, but like for the folks who are getting a gigantic truck and it is spotlessly clean, and like, you know, the ones, right? The ones that have like, they've yeah. never had anything like they put in the rhino liner in the back and it has never had a scratch in it. And just like the whole thing. And it's going to be replaced this, in two years because yes, they yes, buy it new right. and then replace it two years later with a different new one. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's, it's, it's how they have a $120,000 loan on a 50000 or $80,000 truck. And it part of the... That doesn't fit in the standard garage. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Part of the thing here is like, if we, if, and it's not happening, nobody's actually imposing this tax, but if we're putting a tax on trucks, we could even justify it by saying this is going towards carbon emissions. Like this is going towards this sort of environmental thing because 
the number of trucks in Saskatchewan, I know that there's not uh, that many people in Saskatchewan, but we are beating the hell out of our environment by driving these trucks. It's not good for us. But like on the flip side, like putting a tax on gas trucks specifically, you know, like there are, I, I can say I've got a bunch of friends in trades who are extremely excited about the electric trucks coming out that they can like right. power their job sites off of and stuff. Like once give it, you know, another year and create incentives to move to those electric trucks and people will in droves. Yep. So yeah, like, yeah, right. why not well, tax? And the we're gas one of the only Go provinces ahead. that doesn't have an incentive to buy electric. Yeah. Oh man. We've got the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, <laughs> I did a breakdown of that fairly recently in a TikTok, yeah. and like Quebec has over, like Quebec, I think it's Quebec and BC have by orders of magnitude more sold than anywhere else in yeah. Canada, and shockingly, they're the ones with the the subsidies. And Saskatchewan, with our added taxes, sold yeah. by far the least. I bought I bought an electric car in 2014, and when I bought mine. I was one of a hundred that were owned in the province. Over half of that hundred were owned by Sask Power. Um, as demonstration, <laughs> <laughs> when I bought, but I had to buy it out of province and I had to buy it used. It would be ridiculous to not buy it used because the pricing takes into account the, the rebate. So I bought it from, I, I bought it to a two year old vehicle. So I bought a 2012 electric vehicle in 2014. Um, the person who bought it initially would have gotten a $7,000 rebate. So the used price reflects that. So, mm -hmm. but what that does is not only does it disincentivize buying electric, it disincentivizes people who do want to buy electric for buying in Saskatchewan. There is, mm -hmm. there is no way, shape or form. If you are interested in an electric vehicle that you should be buying it in this province. You almost well, have to buy, and you have to be arrested. You basically, there's a bunch of complications. You're also almost having to buy it used. Um, so, well, and as a result of that sort of thing, with the lack of incentives, we're really low on the pecking order for where those companies are sending vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, if you Absolutely. want an electric vehicle in Saskatchewan, a buddy of mine just bought one. He went through the whole process. You basically are buying a vehicle sight unseen. Yep. There's nothing you can test drive. You just order one and hope you like it. That's what I did. Wow. I bought it from Portland. I, I was a car. Wow. It was a car dealership out of Vancouver. It was a it was a American car. So, um, but it was a car broker from Vancouver. I got in touch with them. Paid for it to be shipped. It cost me a thousand dollars to ship it. Um, I owned it for five years and it was still cheaper to pay the thousand dollars shipping to pay an extra four thousand dollars compared to a similar gas powered vehicle. Um, I saved more in gas, more in gas on the five years that I owned it than I spent on buying a more expensive vehicle and paying for it to be shipped and all of that. Um, mm. best car I've ever owned. Um, but we don't have the infrastructure, so I couldn't drive to Saskatoon in it. So it only worked when we were a two-car family. Um, now that I'm in a one-car household, I can't have it anymore, which sucks. And I'm hoping a few years down the road that'll change again, and we'll get the infrastructure, and we'll get the ability to drive from Regina to Saskatoon. You just take a half-hour break partway through, and you're good. But until we have the infrastructure it, it it's the it's that chicken and the egg thing right it, it's you have this vicious circle of no one's buying the car because there isn't the infrastructure but they're saying there's no need to build the infrastructure because no one's buying the cars um, but so out of curiosity i the number one 
thing that I get because I post about electric vehicles fairly regularly and, and there's sort of the same yahoos in the comments yeah. repeatedly <laughs> say the you same, try driving one. <laughs> the same yahoo things and but the they always are going on and on about how you know in their mind Saskatchewan is a frozen wasteland 24 hours a day yeah and seven you know, days a week does the 365 cold, days a year <laughs> I'm not crazy the cold does not bother them that much does so it so the cold reduces the range so they are 100% right the cold absolutely reduces the range um so and again I'm going to point out I owned a 2012 with a like by the end when I sold it it was a 7 year old battery and the and you do need to replace the battery every 7 to 8 years so like it was nearing the end of his battery life but and mine again was not a tesla <laughs> i am not a i am <laughs> rich enough to be a tesla owner mine was a nissan leaf um and i had about 140 kilometers of range um in the summer in spring and fall maybe 150 um because ac drops the range a little bit as well in minus 40, like dead of winter, minus 40, big winds, it could drop to as little as 80 kilometers of range. So it does have an impact. However, one of the things to remember, if you don't have a timer on your block heater, so your gas-powered car, if you don't have a timer on your block heater and you leave your car, regular gas-powered car, plugged in to a block heater overnight, that uses more electricity than my leaf would take to charge fully. Like that's the level of electricity they use. And what I would do every morning is I got, I had in the middle of winter, I had it set while it was still plugged in and I have a little fancy app for the car because uh, even entry level, they can have an app for it because there's no engine to turn on. There's no need for command start because it's all electric. I just programmed it in. The heater started about a half hour before I got in. The wheel heated up, the like the steering wheel, the seats, all of that was at full heat before I got in it in the morning, which meant it used less power when not unplugged. So I unplugged mm. it. It was already fully warm on the inside. I didn't need to have the heater cranked while driving. Like it, it was luxurious. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> um because you can run it in your garage because there's no carbon monoxide coming out of it. So you could have the heater running for as long as you want before you get it inside a closed garage. Um, and it drove amazing. Like there was, and it will never not start because it has its own built in heater. So it is perpetually plugged into its own block heater. Um, mm -hmm. because like car batteries won't work under 25 degrees. That's why we need to have block heaters. The liquids inside the battery start to freeze. I'm not a car guy, but this is the research I figured out. <laughs> um, with an electric car, they have block heaters built into them as well, but the block heater is powered by the giant lithium battery. So it is perpetually plugged into a block heater all the time, 24-7, but it's powered by its own battery as opposed to the inefficient system that a gas-powered car will do. So it will never not start. It will always be the equivalent of starting a plugged-in car. Um, and again, you lose a little bit of a trickle charge throughout the day. Um, but I would, like, I would, if you think about it like bars on your cell phone, I would have 12 bars of charge. Um, it would take two, three bars to drive to work. On a minus 40 day, if I was at work for 10 hours, I would lose one bar, drive home, plug it in, Nothing like it, it didn't phase me. Um, and city driving was fine in the five years I owned it. 
I worried about, I had range anxiety one, one time. Um, and it was because I had to drive all the way from one end of town back and forth a couple times, um, because I got home and my ex-wife, wife at the time had forgotten something at her mother-in-law's who was literally polar opposite ends of the city. So we had to drive back and get home. And that one time we sort of drove into the garage with about maybe eight or nine kilometers worth of range left. And it was a bit scary, but like it, it's, it's, easy to drive and it's they're fun to drive i'm i'm a huge advocate of them i could rant for ages about them because <laughs> the only car i've ever driven that uh, has had even remotely close to the fun that it is to drive one um i mm. rented a car once when i was on vacation and they ran out of cars and they gave me like a sports car to drive for the week and it was like a top end i was i was scared but i was driving this like seventy thousand dollar <laughs> sports car in england uh on the wrong side of the road um that was the only car i've ever driven that had something even close to the level of handling my twenty thousand dollar leaf had um <laughs> because again you, it's instant instant torque i don't know if that's the car word yeah um but yep. it was it was super fun to drive. I will, I will die on the hill of electric vehicles. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my next sure. one, my next vehicle is a hundred percent going to be electric. I just have no idea when that's going to be. They have to be available first. That's fair. <laughs> I'm leaning that way. I have a, quite the commute to work, but if uh, some of these battery, these charging stations go up along the the way route that I take, then I will definitely be going to the electric vehicle. Right on. And the level two charging stations, um, which aren't the ones they're going to put on highway. Highway need level three because the level threes are the ones that will charge you in half an hour. Um, But the level twos cost about $1,000. I, for the entire five years I owned mine, I never even bothered to get one. I just plugged it into a wall outlet. um, And that that's all I ever needed for charging. And I was meant to get around to getting a level two charger. But the cost of a level two charger five years ago, at least, are probably cheaper now. Um, like I said, it was about 500 bucks or about a thousand bucks. If you get the, you can get it wired into your house and then you're paying about $500 for the machine and then $500 for an electrician to wire it in. Or you can get ones that plug into like a dryer outlet, like the, the 240 volt ones. Um, in which case you're paying about $500 for someone to wire that type of outlet into your house and $500 for the machine that plugs into it. So, and those charge them very quick. Doesn't sound like much if you say it fast. And, you know, it's still real money. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not nothing. But again, five years of owning it never needed it. I always, like I said, plugged oh, it into sure. a wall outlet just like you would a block heater. I spend, I currently spend $600 a month on fuel. Yeah. So, <laughs> so with an electric vehicle, that would drop it to about $60 a month of electricity. I yeah. walk to work. So. Even better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I happen, like, I, moved fairly recently and this wasn't by design but i happen to have chosen a house that's about six blocks away from my work nice so unless it's minus a bazillion i just walk so i'll probably wait to buy for a while yet (laughs) just because why bother for sure the new provincial tax on entertainment services including gyms and the sask gym industry fitness industry considers it a short-sighted so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit around the budget. There's a new tax uh, on entertainment services, and that includes uh, the fitness centers and uh, an increased tax on, on various other things like cigarettes, 
Uh, I know people are unhappy about the increased price of cigarettes. So, so but yeah. So I actually, I happen to have a couple of friends who uh, own gyms and they are furious about this. Okay. Like it's, it's tough because like they, the pandemic was brutal for gyms. Like unless they were big commercial globo gyms, like a lot of the local gyms closed up shop, went out of business had to downsize like they have been holding on by their teeth like i know um lots of different gyms got shut down and like lots of small independent gyms depended on members still paying dues even though the gym was closed just to try to keep the keep the lights on like this is such a slap in the face to gyms specifically but like it very specifically targets like basically every industry you can think of that got hit hard by covid this hits (laughs) Like let's who who do we really want to stick it to? Hospitality, you know. I'm trying All to think those of businesses who, they said we were opening up to support. Yeah, <laughs> and said fuck them. Open for business. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, by the way, we're gonna tap. And I understand the idea of wanting to harmonize it with the GST. Like, uh, it 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 does make sense to some degree. To say if you're gonna like, let's just have the sale with well, the sales tax that we have federally just will line up with that. So I understand some of the rationale behind it, but then you need to partner that with saying, hey, the, the there's going to be increased revenue, but there's also going to be decreased bureaucracy, and we're going to take the savings and reinvest it back into industries that are getting hit by this at the very least as a temporary measure, even if you don't want to be tax and spend, like we're going to add this 5% tax and give it right back to you. Um, and I understand not wanting to necessarily do it that way, but at least say temporarily give some cushioning to, to navigate through that. Um, I, I, this, this seems short sighted as a, a political move, but. Well, it's not just short sighted as a political move. Like it's short sighted, to continue like to throw another just lead weight on an industry that's struggling and it it speaks to a larger problem that Saskatchewan's dealing with and going to have to deal with which is the they they've they've created this climate that's extremely focused on business but has completely lost sight of the amenities that you need to make people come here and want to work and run their businesses here <laughs> yeah, right? right like if if you go to, you know, Regina and you're thinking about starting your business or expanding your business to Regina, and you're like, well, can we – there's a worker shortage. Well, what are they doing to appeal to workers? Well, they're running a bunch of restaurants out of business. So pretty soon all that's going to be left is Olive Garden. And they're running all the gyms out of business. So pretty soon all that's going to be left is Planet Fitness. So – like – it, they're, it's like they're going out of their way to take away things that make Saskatchewan appealing. It's like, so you may not know this. Saskatchewan, so I was a competitive powerlifter for years. Saskatchewan is one of the powerlifting capitals of the world. Uh, we have like world champions and all manner of stuff. And like all, almost all of that powerlifting happens in little small independent gyms who are just getting smashed by this. There used to be in in Weyburn. Uh, there used to be a lot of really good uh, powerlifters coming out of there. For there still are. People. There still are. Olympia in depth performance. Shout out. Uh, 
it's they're like they put out a ton of lifters still. But <laughs> yeah, the Saskatchewan government they they can't uh, I guess make enough money off of that. So <laughs> oh no, you gotta keep getting blood from the stone, man. Yeah, you gotta you, you need the money if you're gonna bail out the poor, you know, underprivileged <laughs> resource companies that just really they need our support. Maybe a couple of ads with Sarah McLaughlin music playing in the background. Right, right. Yeah. You know, it's got, you got to think about the real victims here. Orphaned Wells. That's a good note right. to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Steve, where can people find your stuff? Uh, I am on TikTok as uh, boots on the ground at Steve underscore boots. And uh, I've got a website where you can find all my stuff. It's boots.news. And you can find me on Twitter as Steve underscore boots. Perfect. If people want to find more of our stuff, you can do that at anchor.fm slash from many peoples. Our Twitter is at SK politics pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash from many peoples strength pod. All of the show notes are at my podcast, which is skeptical, or at my blog, which is skepticalleftistpod.wordpress.com. I'm not paying for my own domain. <laughs> you can email us at frommanypeoples at gmail.com. And if you want to send us money, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash frommanypeoples. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, joining me this evening. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you, as always, Corey, for doing the hard work to make it happen letting letting <laughs> us show up and just talk and spout opinions well that's my favorite part so 